Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I've been home for the past week, so no travel updates for you. Uh, it's been nice to be home for a week. Uh, I love my job. I love the travel, but waking up in the same bed every day, it's kind of a novelty. <laughs> and certainly, uh, I've got another week of almost being at home every day. Uh, we've got one one overnight in Phoenix coming up this week. So with the upcoming events this spring, speaking of this Wednesday, uh, this week is the Summit on PLC at Work. That's the big conference in uh, Solution Tree Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, February 28th through the 2nd. I'll be presenting on the 1st this week. Other events coming up this spring, the Grading from the Inside Out virtual two-day training. That'll be April 4th and 11th. Standards-based learning in action, that two-day training. I'll be in Idaho Falls, Idaho, April 13th and 14th. The Assessment and Grading Conference will be in Atlanta, Georgia, April 24th to 26th. I'll be presenting on the 24th and 25th because Grading from the Inside Out, the two-day training will be in Salt Lake City, uh, April 26th and 27th. And of course, we have the big Assessment Center Institute uh, that's happening in Las Vegas, Nevada, May 24th to 26th. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes for all of those events should they be of interest to, uh, to you. And also, uh, you can find those events on the Solution Tree website. I also want to remind you, uh, like I did a couple of weeks ago, that I have a new book coming out this spring, this April. Uh, it's called Redefining Student Accountability, A Proactive Approach to Teaching Behavior Outside the Gradebook. And it's all about how we teach responsibility and other student attributes without distorting their achievement levels or their achievement grades. You can pre-order that book now. It ships on April 21st when the book is officially published. And of course, I have a link in the show notes for that too. Thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I really do appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Dr. Shelley Moore. Shelley is an author and a fierce advocate for equity and inclusion. So that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner, I want to talk about portfolios and one of the most important but often overlooked factors in successful long-term sustainability of using portfolios in a classroom or a school. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Shelley Moore is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking you a question. What is the last thing you said to yourself about yourself? Now, we all talk to ourselves and tell ourselves different stories. We, some of those stories are fact, some of those stories are fiction. But I want you to take a moment right now and think about how you talk to yourself about yourself. Now, I'm thinking more about the things you say to yourself in terms of your personality or your characteristics. I mean, we all talk to ourselves for many reasons. Sometimes we're talking to ourselves about things that have actually happened. That's different. I'm talking more about how we judge ourselves and the things we say to ourselves that we sometimes aren't even aware that we are saying to ourselves. And here's the thing. The things we say to ourselves can often be things that we would never say to a friend or a family member. I think it's a fascinating psychological study in that we can often be more negative toward ourselves than we are to other people, even when we're in our private moments. When we talk about ourselves in a public forum, sometimes we speak the truth and sometimes we put on a performance. I mean, if everyone knows, for example, that you're not very good at something or you're average at something, and then you proceed to talk about it in terms of not being very good at something, then you're simply telling the truth and you obviously have a level of self-awareness. But we all know there are times where we're really good at something and then people start talking about it publicly and we put on this aw shucks performance and pretend to be humble when everyone knows you're really good at it. So if you're really good at playing basketball, for example, or you're a really good writer, and people point that out, pretending that you're not is this kind of faux humility that can sometimes be necessary, I get it, but more often than not is irritating. It's probably more irritating to me than if you were just being honest about how good you were at something. Faux humility, as many of you who are longtime listeners of this podcast know, is definitely something I find most annoying. It is for sure in the top five things that I find least endearing about a person. And I say top five, but truthfully, it's probably one or two. And if I was thinking about it right now, I would say it's number one. Okay, so I just workshop that right here in front of you. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can't think of anything I find more off-putting than faux humility. Anyway, so... There are times in a public forum where 
we tell the truth and there's times where we put on this performance. But I want you to think about those private moments. You're in the car, okay? Or, you know, you're home alone. Or, or even, you're, you know, you're running on the treadmill, or you're out for a walk or somewhere where it's just you and your thoughts and you're talking to yourself. What's the last thing you said to yourself about yourself? Was it supportive? Was it forgiving? Was it even kind? Did you show yourself the kind of compassion that you would typically show a friend or a family member? Now, I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but I feel like sometimes we think without thinking. I mean, you're always thinking about something, which is why I have to laugh when I see some people's social media profile. I'm not laughing at them, but I see their social media profiles, and one of the descriptors they use for themselves is thinker. Oh, yeah, okay, good, good to know, good to know you think. We all think. Everybody, everybody's a thinker. But I think it's true that if we don't control our thoughts, our thoughts will control us. And if we just think on autopilot, if we act on auto, autopilot and we talk to ourselves on autopilot, then we put ourselves in a position where we are susceptible to saying things to ourselves that we wouldn't say to anybody else, especially those who matter to us. Kristen Neff is an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin. And according to an article I was reading online by Anissa Horton, Neff is considered one of the world's leading experts in self-compassion. Now, she defines, this being Neff, she defines self-compassion as, quote, treating ourselves kindly when we feel inadequate, with kindness and concern, like we would treat a friend. And she contrasts this idea of self-compassion with self-esteem. And she says that self-esteem, quote, is a judgment on self-worth. Self-esteem has some problems because when we fail or we make a mistake, we feel badly about ourselves, end quote. Now, another psychologist, uh, Rami Nijar, I think that's how you pronounce it, N-I-J-J-A-R, uh, Rami Nijar, uh, talks about why self-compassion is so challenging. And it's so challenging because there's a lot of shame associated with it. People tend to wonder when we're showing ourselves self-compassion, am I being self-indulgent? Is this self-pity? Am I weak? What is it? Now, according to Nijar, because self-compassion helps us with how we internalize stress in the world, we actually, by showing ourselves self-compassion, we tend to be better equipped to deal with the challenging situations. This gives us more emotional energy to have better relationships with others. Now, in another article, Kristen Neff again challenged the idea that self-compassion is selfish. She said, quote, most people find that when they're absorbed in self-judgment, they actually have little bandwidth left over to think about anything other than their inadequate, worthless selves. But when, she goes on to say, when we can be kind and nurturing to ourselves, however, many of our emotional needs are being met, which leaves us in a better position to focus on others, end quote. One last thing to think about. Journalist and author Melissa Dahl suggests there are three things or three questions we can all use when practicing self-compassion. And this is the pathway forward. This is kind of the formula. First, she writes, think about how many people have experienced what you just experienced. Two, think about how you would respond if a friend was the one who experienced what you just experienced or what you just remembered, and they came to you and wanted to talk about it. How would you respond to that? And then three, think about how a neutral observer would view the situation that's causing you to beat yourself up. Dahl's point is that when you force yourself to think about these three questions or these three ideas, you start to realize that you're not the only one who makes mistakes. You're not the only one who ever has negative experiences. The result of that is that you're less likely to attach those experiences to your sense of self-worth. And so Dahl finishes with this idea that, quote, Maybe the most compassionate attitude you can take towards yourself is to stop obsessing about yourself, end quote. Now, if you aren't already, pay close attention to how you talk to yourself about yourself. Now, I don't pretend to have this all figured out. I need to work at this just like everyone else. We all need to be much kinder to ourselves. At least be as kind to yourself as you would be to a friend or a family member who thought or experienced the very same thing you just did.
Joining me this week for the interview is Dr. Shelley Moore. Uh, Shelley is a highly sought-after teacher, researcher, speaker, and storyteller. She has worked with school districts and community organizations around the world in supporting and promoting equity for all learners. Her first book, entitled One Without the Other, was released in July of 2016. And to follow up, her TED Talk, TEDx Talk, I should say, with the new title, is going to be released in the fall of 2023. So maybe we can talk about that as well. We are going to dig into the idea of inclusion, UDL, equity, and all points in between. Uh, most importantly, Shelley is not only a fellow Canadian, she is a fellow BCer. And uh, so we have that connection as well. And Shelley and I know a lot of the same people, but we've never met before. So really excited for this conversation. Shelley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so how much for having me, Tom. This is so fun. Yeah, really excited to have you here. Um, yay, BC. Great to meet you. Yeah, yay, BC. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Um, Congratulations, by the way, on finishing your doctoral studies. Oh, uh, I know you. you're very excited about that. And uh, hardest thing I, I, I know, I, I know from mutual friends uh, that your work is very highly regarded, um, especially by two people. I have to say, Leanne Young and Katie Novak speak very highly of you and and love the work that you do. And those are two people that I have tremendous respect for. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm thrilled to have you here, and I'm I'm really excited that you agreed to to be on the podcast. Thank so you. Um, before we dig into some of the uh, the meat of the conversation, if you will, let's start with the rundown of your career. Can you highlight for listeners a little bit of the professional journey uh, so far, the pathway? Where did you start your education career? What led you all the way to the point where you are today? Okay. That's a good one. That's a good question. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, to start my professional, to start the story of my professional journey, I think I have to start like grade three, because that's when I first realized that special education was a thing. Um, that was the year that I was diagnosed with having a learning disability. And the year that I realized the school was not made for kids like me. And so um, as I kind of bumbled through my career and having really significant years, right, that had an impact as, as we all often have, um, I knew that by the time I got to post-secondary that I wanted to be a teacher and to work with kids like me, um, you know, often the kids that have some challenging behavior, ADHD, you know, the kids that like struggle. Um, and so I went into special education at University of Alberta and it took me a long time because universities are, are not very UDL-y and, uh, <laughs> shocking. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so it took me a little bit of time, it took me a little bit of time, but I, but I got there and, um, it was in Alberta and it was kind of during the, when I graduated, it was 2003 and it was during the time when, uh, like there were no, there was no teaching jobs. Um, and so they would have these giant recruitment fairs to get teachers. And so a ton of places, a ton of jurisdictions from the States would come and get, cause Canadian education is, is, is very strong. Yeah. And so I got recruited to teach in New York city, which was my very first job. I taught in the South Bronx. I saved no children of color. There was no movies made. It's very important. Although I would say that I think a really great movie would be if like how the Bronx saved me, because let me tell you, these kids were phenomenal. I was there for two years. I would have stayed longer, but they wanted me to get a master's. And I'm like, I am never going to school again. Like, forget it. So but I was there for two years. I worked at elementary school. And uh, this is where I started to like, and I tell this story to some of my groups where, you know, you leave education and you're like, I got this. I know what I'm going to do. I have my philosophy. It's sound. And then you get into your career and you realize like, wow, I'm not ready for this. I'm, I'm not prepared for this. Like all of a sudden I had to do things I didn't agree with. that didn't align with my philosophy. And um, this is, I think, where there was a big kind of turning point for me because as a special educator in this school, I had students on my caseload that had disabilities, but they weren't low incidence disabilities. Like I had no kids with Down syndrome or autism. Right. And we were considered an inclusive school. Like I was a co-teacher. And when I started asking questions about, well, where are the kids with Down syndrome, I learned, and this is not specific to New York, this happens all over the place, where students with the most significant disabilities were in a different district, not even just a different school, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I was like, well, that's not inclusion. That's not what I would hold inclusion is for everybody. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, you know, and so when I started asking questions, like, why, well, why are they in a different district? And the response I always got was, well, they need something different. And I'm like, hmm. what's the thing? Like, well-meaning people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like people didn't even realize that that wasn't appropriate. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, I'm in my first year of teaching. I'm not going to take on New York City. But, you know, it was kind of one of those <laughs> things where it's like, you know, you lay low and you're like, well, don't agree with that. Don't agree with that. So we end up, I think I did what many people do. You close your door. You mm -hmm. do the best you can with the kids you have, knowing that there's so many factors that you can't control. Oh. And uh, so I was there for two years. But that's when I started, like, thinking about this question. Um 
about the difference between inclusion and equity and this idea of like, you can be inclusive to the people who are in front of you, but like when we start asking the questions, who's not in front of you, that's when we really start to get into this. Right. And there was a ton Mm -hmm. of kids who were not in front of us Mm -hmm. and, um, but it didn't bother everybody. And that was the part that I found more problematic, right? you know, but as a young teacher, no one listens to you. So I come to Canada and, uh, and I get a job in a high school, which is actually like where I wanted to teach kind of that grades eight to 12 in kind of greater Vancouver area. And, you know, it, it was better. There was kids with intellectual disabilities in the high school, but we were still kind of down a wing. And I'm just like, well, we're here. Is this inclusion? Like we're here, but like we have our own door. And, <laughs> like, you know, like, and again, yeah. like, you know, like, it, it, no, like, well-meaning people didn't see it as a problem. Right. It's all, it's all they know. It's all they know. And so I, I really tried my best, Tom. I tried to shut down the program and put everybody in all of the classes. And I'd love to tell you that it went well. It didn't. It was awful. It was awful. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, I learned that, you know, inclusion isn't just about physical existence right Right. it's been a long journey but but it was in um that job in in vancouver greater vancouver that i was like you know this is because i was working with kids with intellectual disabilities and i found like a home there that i'd never felt before like a kinship with the families and the kids and uh, a secret which is if we could figure it out for them, we could figure it out for everybody because they were right. just really obvious examples of what everybody needs kind of thing. And mm-hmm. it was a struggle. Like it was a fight. So I was there for about seven years. And then I went to the district at a district level position, supporting multiple high schools on, yeah. um, including students with intellectual disabilities. And, you know, like our district was pretty good, especially when it came to electives, but there still weren't kids in academic classrooms, which was where really where my passion started to grow. Like if we really believe but all kids can learn. <laughs> Why aren't in academic classrooms beyond grade eight, right? So right, right. That was really uh, what led me to uh, my PhD. I still can't even believe I did it. Like, yeah, I can't even believe that I've got this far. And so that was my research was, um, you know, what does it look like? Like, how do we support teachers to mm-hmm. meaningfully include kids with intellectual disabilities in high school academic classrooms? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like for teachers? What does that look like for students? What does that look like for peers? Um, and, uh, which brings me to today because, you know, (laughs) because, and and I first started off really talking about, you know, what does inclusion look like for intellectual disabilities, but it has blown up to how do we support inclusion for everyone? Because it comes back to that, what, what these kids need or what everybody needs, you know, but it's turned into an inclusive conversation that still just talks about everyone but them. So it's just, it's going to be a forever job. It's going to be a forever job for sure. I'm still trying to get over the fact that you said you graduated in 2003 and I was 13 oh. years into my career. So I'm still, oh, yeah. it's always those moments where you're confronted by, <laughs> you actually are kind of old, Tom. That's, <laughs> that's where, where it, Well, if it makes it, you it, feel better, I graduated high school in 97. All right. I'll, I'll work. That's with a that little then. better, that's, right? That's a little better. Yeah. Mine, mine is 85. So okay, I okay. think uh, you got a few years on you for sure. Um, and listeners, uh, you really should check out if you haven't, and I'm sure many of you have, but Shelly's YouTube channel is fantastic. Like it really is a model for how to do a YouTube channel for sure. And as I was watching one of your five more minutes, and I that's such a clever title as well. Like you just, you're doing everything right. Uh, one of your five more minute videos on YouTube, um, uh, again, listeners, you got to check it out. Um, some great content. You described the evolution of inclusion, and I loved that video. I thought that was really, really well that was done. The first one. So that's right. And you yeah. described the evolution from exclusion to segregation to integration to inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and listeners, you got to check that out. It's a really great progression of how Shelley lays that out, which I found fascinating. But but you asked a question at the end, and this is the question I want to put to you: um, Can we still do better? Mm-hmm. So. I want to turn that to you and say, Shelly, do you think there's another step? Mm. So past inclusion, what would be your answer to the question that you posed to people who are watching that video? Can we still do better? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's another evolution in inclusion? And if so, what is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you if there's a visual that goes with that video, yeah. and basically it's in all four of those exclusion, segregation, integration, inclusion, it's basically um, a visual of a bubble 
and a whole bunch of green dots. And then in each of those progressions, we're trying to figure out what to do with the dots that aren't green. So exclusion, they're totally out of the bubble. Um, segregation, they're out of the bubble, but grouped together. Integration is they're in the bubble, but they're still grouped together. And then inclusion is they're dispersed among all the green. And if you were to ask me when I first started my career, what inclusion is, I would have said that. But I'm going to tell you a little quick story, Tom, about okay. why I think we can do better. Um, I was teaching a course at University of British Columbia, and because um, I love, I love the visual. It causes such a good conversation because I'll ask people to label them, and I've never had consensus because, you know, all of us have a different understanding about what inclusion is, which is a huge right. barrier to moving mm -hmm. forward. So I always kind of start my courses and a lot of my pro D with this slide of this visual that says, you know, what does inclusion mean? And I love it. Like I use the slide with parents and with teachers and with kids. So I show this to my students. They're all grad students. So they're all teachers. And one of my students rolls her eyes and, and hum, humps. She's like, oh, I hate this slide. And I'm like, her name's Julie. I have permission to tell this story. And I'm just like, Julie. All right, Julie. All right, Julie. Julie I'm coming for you. Like, what are you doing? Pull yourself together. Like, don't you want to pass? What do you mean you hate this slide? This is a great slide. Like, no, this is an awful slide. She's like, I see this slide everywhere on Pro D. I see this slide in conferences that none of these are inclusion I'm like, what do you mean so she points to the inclusion bubble and she goes so in the inclusion bubble remember there's a whole bunch of green dots and then a few dots that aren't green she's like okay she's like first of all who are these green dots are those supposed to be the normal children and i'm like why you gotta say it like that julie <laughs> and then she's like oh and so the non-green dots are those supposed to be the special needs children and i'm like well, now you're making it sound like it's a bad thing and so I'm trying to see where she's going from this. She's like, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this. She's like, I have a classroom right now. And she goes, first of all, I've never had that many green students in my class. Never had that many normal children in my class. She's like, second, I'm going to tell you what happens to those non-green dots. The red dots, they have a red teacher and they follow a red plan. And the blue dots, they have a blue teacher, they follow a blue plan. Orange dots, orange teacher, orange plan. She goes, what all those plans have in common are their plans to make them green. That's not inclusion, that's assimilation. <laughs> can you imagine my face julie coming in like, hot julie, you pass you pass <laughs> and it was just this whole like moment of this misunderstanding that even i was just like oh my goodness you're so right what she described was exactly special education which evolved out of the medical model right because you know if, you, if you're not where you should be something is wrong our entire funding model is designed based on this medical model right. and you know if so, if you're not where you should be something's wrong and then we have these little you know we assess we diagnose if we can't figure it out we send them to a specialist like they might as well have a broken leg and then we make these plans we put resources into these plans and these assessments to fix them but like is that really the goal is the, is the goal really to remove disability from students and, and we had this whole conversation around like what if we viewed any other identity that way what if we looked at queer students that way? What if we looked at racialized students that way? I mean, we have a whole like history of looking at indigenous students that way. And right. so we had this whole conversation around like, is inclusion changing who kids are to fit into a status quo? Mm -hmm. Or is inclusion understanding that the goal is not to be the same? Is inclusion helping? Because even kids who are green and doing everything right are having a hard time, right? And so they were like, well, what if inclusion was not making everyone green? What if inclusion was helping kids find their colors? What if inclusion was helping them be brighter? And you realize that, you know, inclusion, what it's really becoming to me is not just about including kids who are different, but like planning for anticipating and teaching to difference, you know, and that idea of teaching to diversity and then even yeah. extending that to, can we even teach to diversity if kids don't feel safe identifying who they are? Right. And that whole extended of like what inclusion today means to me is that we're not just teaching to diversity, but teaching to identity, you know, helping kids to like, be like, this is who I am, but understanding that disability is also an identity right. that needs to exist, not needs to change or, you know, turn into someone without a disability. Like we understand that I hope in every other identity, but we still don't see disability as an identity we see it as something that needs to be fixed. We see it as yeah. a medical deficit. As a deficit, yeah. It's a deficit that, that, you know, and so I mean like our funding models, our contract language, our everything is based on disability as being a burden. And so no wonder kids 
aren't identifying. And so that to me, can we still do better? Yeah, we can see disability as a part of the human condition, (laughs) right? As something that we need in our classrooms, just like any identity. Wow. Julie got her PhD that day. (laughs) Julie, Julie, if you're out there. Julie passed. She can teach the class. No, that's a, assimilation. It that's a, a great story. It was a wow, significant that's... learning moment for me. And, oh, I would imagine. But it yeah, made what me an also realize like what a misunderstanding people have about inclusion. Like right. even something as simple as adapting and modifying. Right. Yeah. No. That, it's a that, retro- that is a right. Like it changes how I look at everything. I can imagine you're you're probably just thinking, look, Julie, I'm just trying to put some dots on the screen, right? trying to explain these <laughs> concepts. Like, back off a little bit. <laughs> it also happened. It was like the day that I was. You have to go top shelf on me, yes. Julie. Like, slow down. I know. But, it was my birthday that year. I'm like, thanks for that. Oh, yes. God. Thanks. I know. <laughs> thanks for making me feel so small. I'm glad totally. I'm your teacher. Totally. I'm not sleeping for days, Julie. Thanks, <laughs> Julie. Who is this Julie? I want to meet her. Let's yeah, let's no. get Go let's let's have Julie. that conversation. Uh, no, uh, so it was a pretty Julie. profound moment for me. Oh, I would imagine for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, it it it's it, it's interesting. What I loved about that video and and the way you laid it out, it's just so um, the way you progressed that through and how thoughtful that was in terms of the evolution. Because I think sometimes we forget, and I think one of the advantages, as I mentioned earlier, of being old is that you do have some historical perspective on how things have evolved, right? You start to, you look at the course of your career. For me, it's year 32 in education. And you sort of look at the arc of the career and you kind of see how things have evolved. And I think that video is very well done Mm. in terms of how how we collectively in education moved from one to the other. We talk now, and I think your question is, and I know you were asking the question in the video because you know there's an answer to that, but can we do better? Can we keep evolving? What does this look like? And I love that perspective of, because you're right, that you know, disability is seen as a deficit. And I know that I would probably be guilty of that too in thinking that, okay, how do we correct this? Or how do we fix this? Or how do we give you some coping strategies as opposed to the true nature of inclusion that you've talked about here? So mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. The other the other thing I love is your um, your bowling analogy. Oh, the bowling. I, I, that's <laughs> oh, the one bowling. that started it all, Tom. That's right. I, I don't necessarily <laughs> love bowling, but... Uh, <laughs> But I love the analogy of the seven ten split yeah. in bowling. Uh, it, it is, it's a fabulous analogy in terms of re, you know the connection to inclusion and in education. So for listeners who are who might be unfamiliar with with you and your work, can you tell them what bowling has to do with teaching and inclusive education? Yeah. Did you know that that was for a contest that video? Yeah. Yeah, it was so fun, and I won. It yes, so it's, it's a fantastic video. Like honestly, it's a really great okay, video, and so it just gets you hooked in with the with the bowling analogy and all of that. So, all right, well, this the floor is another, yours, Shelley. Let's this go. This was another moment in my life that I had a big learning. You're going to start to see a pattern. I get these metaphors when I have a big learning. So this <laughs> was a right. big learning because um, I was in a bowling league when I was little. Me and my brother, like over in Alberta, and they were teaching us, like we all learn to bowl, throw the ball down the middle, maybe a little off to the side a little bit because, you know, you want to create that domino effect. And and then I saw a comic. Someone brought me a comic and it said, um, it was the Charlie Brown comic. And I got to get this one. So like, I don't know, say Lucy says to Charlie, bowling is like teaching. And then, Mm. and it's like, you just roll down the middle. And Charlie's like, well, then you must have a bad teacher. And I was getting, and I didn't really, I didn't really get it. And then I'm like, the comic's wrong. The comic's wrong. Like they're actually assuming that because in my life I've seen bowling. And you, you know, if you look at professional bowlers, they don't, they don't ever roll it down the middle. And I'm like, the comic, that's when I made the teaching connection. I'm like, the assumption is wrong. And I'm like, okay, what if we switch this around and said, what if bowling was like teaching, but you don't aim for the middle? And so this is when I talked to a bowling, a bowler. I'm like, and I talked about where do you aim? And he's like, oh, I aim for the right pocket. And he showed me where that was. And he talked about the whole effect of the domino effect. If you aim for the head pin versus if you aim for the right pocket, which actually is looking at the outside pins, the outside edges, which are actually statistically the hardest pins to hit. If those are the only ones left standing. And um, he talks about how the outside pins are really actually powerful because they take out the whole back row. And, but if you aim for the head pin, you're going to get the front, you're going to get the front three or four pins. Right. And I'm like, Oh, this is so good. (laughs) (laughs) As you can see, I'm like, 
sweating while he's talking to me. And I'm just, so I said to the guy, I'm just like, you know, this is such a good metaphor for teaching. And so we were kind of talking about that. So I said to him, and this isn't in the video, you'll like this. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know what some teachers will say, they're like, well, let's just take out the, let's just take the outside pins out, put them in a different lane, you know, that we don't have to worry about them. And those who said to me, if you take out the outside pins, you're just left with new outside pins. I have to make a bowling 2.0, right? That's so good. That's so good. So the idea is rather than aiming for your head pin, you know, the ones who like are going to get knocked down if you just look at them, why don't we instead aim for the, like, think about the kids who are the hardest to hit in your class, who are your Mm. outside pins Aim for them. What do they need? Do it for everybody because the impact of that domino is way higher than if you aim for the kids who are green, the kids who do everything right, the kids who are where they should be, right? Like um, their impact on others is, or the instruction we give to head pins are gonna have a way less impact than if we think about who needs the most support, who needs the most challenge and teach within that range. You're gonna get so many more kids, which then anchors to that whole, you know, that underlying concept of universal design for learning, which we're gonna talk mm-hmm. about, which is yeah. works for one, works for all. Like, right. you know, and, and and the part that I love is that if you think about bowling, the pins knock down each other. Mm-hmm. There's no way a ball can get to every pin, which also talks about the importance of peers and the importance of community. And it's just such a good metaphor. <laughs> I love it. I'm so glad glad it was gifted to me. No kidding. No kidding. Wow. I didn't know you could do a deep, such a deep analysis on, on bowling. I'm just trying to chuck the ball down the, down the lane. I haven't bowled in probably like 20 or 30 years, but uh, it's been a long time, but uh, for sure. Um, So the seven ten split though, what, what that analogy there, that idea. split. So if you do roll the ball down the middle, yeah. what often happens is the, you'll get the the pins in the middle, but the ones left standing are the seven ten split. And that's the hardest shot in bowling. The chances of getting Mm -hmm. that with one shot are very slim. And so usually bowlers will pick a side. And so if you think about that in terms of education, often the same thing happens. You have kids who need the most support, kids who need the most challenge. So we end up picking a side and there's always a pin left standing. So either the kids who need the most support or the kids who need the most challenge, which Mm -hmm. is why we're like, give me an EA because we can't get to everybody. Right. Right. And so um, the idea is, and you need more balls. (laughs) need more balls to get to everyone but the idea with you know aiming for the outside with that curve it takes skill you got to learn it you got to practice it it takes you know like there you can't just huck it down right yeah Yeah. how to be coached um we often weren't taught how to do this you know like it always comes back and then it's this idea of you'll get more on the first shot right you'll get more Mm -hmm. on the first teach if you aim for accessibility and challenge instead of aiming for average Mm -hmm. wow Mm -hmm. yeah no um yeah, who knew that bowling could have so many, so many layers it's to my it. Favorite. Did your did your bowling connection, your professional bowler, did they give you any insight as to how you actually deal with the seven ten split in a in a real bowling you sense, not metaphorically, but actually how did yeah, how do you no. deal with that? <laughs> He was because uh, I because we, we we like in our sparring, he was yeah. like you know basically you have to like nick it. So that ah, it flies across. You got to kick it over, right? You got to yeah. like nick it so that it goes bing. <laughs> so you're like, so do you aim outside? You aim to the outside, right? You don't want to. Out- do- so you aim to the outside and then it nicks it because still the pin yeah, has to it, knock it over because the ball. Right. Although there and are the some good, examples where the ball does. But be, it's just a the physics gut- thing, right? Like. Yeah, yeah. And the gutter is right there. So it's, you're you living on the edge. What's funny about that, Tom, is that when I think about like my undergrad, I was in special education. And when yeah. they talked about the outside pins in, in planning, mm-hmm. the only strategy we were given was just pair up the kids who need support with the kids who need challenge. Like, uh, <laughs> it was the only strategy. And I'm like, well, isn't that just perfect for the bowling metaphor? Right. Well, they could just work <laughs> to group them together. <laughs> oh, the bowling. We're going to spend half an hour now on the bowling. We're going to take all, take it to all layers. And uh, honestly, no, it's just, it's a really good one. No, it's, it's so, so insightful. It really is. It's a, it's a great way of looking at things. So let you mentioned universal design for learning. Mm-hmm. And I, and I totally am with you on the idea mm-hmm. that so many of the strategies that we think about for students with identified special needs or English language learners, oh. or they, they work for everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about universal design for learning. I want to ask us in two parts. Mm-hmm. First, for you, what are the fundamental principles of UDL? Okay, I got to tell you a story. All right. This is how story I learned. Time with Shelley. Here we go. Now, this metaphor isn't mine, so I got to make sure I give credit to Alexander, who came up with this quote. And you've probably heard it before. 
and I'm, I'm going to butcher it because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like this. He says, if a flower isn't thriving, check the soil. Have you seen that before? No, I haven't. That's okay. a good one. So it's a good one, right? Because if a flower is dying, doesn't look too great, makes your garden look funny, it's very easy to clip it out and put it in the compost. Mm-hmm. Right? Put your resources into getting rid of the flower. But in reality, if a flower is dying in a garden, they need water, they need light, they need to be free of slugs, they need to be have space. Like the conditions that that flower needs are environmental. Mm-hmm. And so this this to me is UDL because in, in our special education model, we put all our resources into the students. Yeah. But if we understand that disability is an identity that can't be changed, we would save some resources for the garden and for the gardener. Right. And so to me, UDL is resources for the garden. <laughs> it's like what mm. can you do? Because if you actually understand that a plant is dying because they don't need they, they need more sunlight or they need more water, and you give that to the garden. Mm-hmm. all the plants are going to benefit from that. But if you only give it to the, to the flower, then the other flowers are also going to start to die. And so to me, right. that's what UDL is. It's an environmental support. And that's at tier one, right? Like yep. look at the garden, let's support the gardener. But the students tell us if this, if the flowers are wilting, that's a, that's a symptom of the garden, not a deficit in the flower. Right. And that's a really creaky finding because our resources are dumped into the flowers and it's mm-hmm. a black hole because like right. there's nothing wrong with the flowers. Right. And so this yeah. this to me is I think the promise and the, and the excitement of UDL is it changes the focus to a place based approach and a community based approach instead of an individual deficit based approach. Right. And so thinking about then UDL from the big picture, it basically says like, what's the sunlight, what's the water and what's the space that all plants need. Right. And Mm -hmm. so looking about that in terms of learning, it's looking at how do we engage students? How do we help them like understand, like receive and understand new information and how do we help them express like that? Those are their basic needs. Those are, that's the formula for learning. And, you know, but understanding that there, there might be plants that need more water. There might be plants that need more shade. There might be plants that need some companion plants. You know, not all plants are the same, but there are basic needs. And that if we can attend to the basic needs, it reduces the crisis so we can actually then look at individual needs. And so that, like when I think of UDL, that's what I think of it is like, what, how do we provide those basic needs for everybody? Bring down the crisis so we can actually look at individual needs, which are then those kind of tier two, tier three of that layered right. approach of support. It's very intimidating though for teachers when they think about the idea of providing mm-hmm. support for everyone. And mm-hmm. I think at first when people not familiar with UDL, there is that level of overwhelmed, like they feel overwhelmed by well, the, I mean, the prospect not- of trying to attend. So how do I do that as a classroom teacher? Well, I mean, the thing is, and the part, this is the part that, you know, like sometimes I might get people mad at me for because like UDL is a brilliant framework, but like the irony that UDL is so inaccessible to teachers, like it is so filled with jargon. It is not yeah. written for educators. Like I work with teachers. They're just like, Oh no, I tried UDL. And I'm like, <laughs> right. Didn't work. But like yeah. I read it. And like one of the UDL principles is like heightened salience. I'm like, what does that mean? Like it's not accessible. And right, like the right. irony that UDL has so many barriers as a framework. I am yeah. not surprised that all the teachers are overwhelmed because I was, I'm like, I don't know what any of these words. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very cryptic. And so make it accessible to us now, Shelly. No, okay. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so UDL, there's these, there's, I think about like those three parts of the brain, three parts yeah. of the brain. And um, those three parts of the brain have to be highlighted in all of us for to learn. Okay, we all have to be engaged. We all have to receive information and understand it. We all have to share it. That's basically the goals of education. Now, what UDL is useful for is that historically, and this now is going to connect now to other frameworks, is uh, historically we have followed a forwards design model, which is everyone has to do the same task to prove that they've met a goal. And if you can't do the task, then you need an adaptation or a modification which then compromises the goal. It's super problematic. And so part of understanding UDL is also understanding a backwards design process where not everyone has to do the same task. Everyone has to meet the same goal. The destination is the goal. The destination is not a five paragraph synthesis essay in reading the outsiders. We have to know what the goal is. And this is your work, you know this. So what UDL says is if you actually know what your goal is, this is your destination, right? 
A five paragraph essay is one way to get there for sure. But what are other ways? What are other ways to engage kids? What are other ways to receive information? What are other ways to understand? What are other ways for students to express? Because historically, the only way that we've relied on is compliance. Do this because I told you. Do this because you need to. Do this because you're going to university. Like it's there's nothing intrinsic about it, and so it's no. So it's not surprising that fewer and fewer kids are engaging based on compliance alone. And so, for example, one example of you know uh, teaching in ways that um, provide multiple pathways for kids to engage, um, bringing in different text sets, right? Like you know having a common theme and thread amongst tests with uh, texts with different levels and different characters and different you know interest levels because if kids have choice they're going to engage more. Um, A way for kids to increase motivation, which is maintaining engagement over time. Um, They need to know why they're doing what they're doing, right? Like what is the learning goal in a student-friendly context, right? Like do they know why they're reading this? Do they know why they're doing this? And so at a very simple level, it's like what what do all kids need and how do we provide multiple pathways to get to that same destination? Because then you don't have to adapt or modify anything. And if, and if we're not adapting or modifying anything, then it doesn't actually affect evaluation at all. But there is like this deep guilt or something that especially secondaries hold that think that if we provide a different pathway, that it's cheating. Right. That we're, yeah. nope, nope, it's cheating, it's cheating. But especially in British Columbia, where if you actually look at the goals, unless it says write, unless it says speak, unless exactly. it's, you know, you don't yeah. have to do that. And so I think yeah. that, you know, this is that's this is like, how do you teach? How do you teach the spit bowling with a spin? Like this re- requires really mm-hmm. important professional development and communities of practice and learning where teachers can ask these hard questions and almost be given permission to say, it's okay. Yeah. Do not, it doesn't mean we abandon writing. No, but it does mean that we have to know what the goal is and we have to provide different ways to get there. If you were to take a look at, at how we gather evidence of learning in many places, it's such a narrow scope yes. of, of methods. And, mm-hmm. and you're right that the learning goals, standards, whatever you want to call them, yeah. they very rarely dictate the assessment method. I mean, oh. they, they, they dictate the assessment method, but not the format. So mm-hmm. a constructed response question doesn't have to be done in writing. It can be done orally. Mm-hmm. It can be done in many different formats, mm-hmm. visually. Uh, so, so I think that this, your point is so well taken that, mm-hmm. that we've got to interrogate and zoom out and look at how we gather evidence of learning. We're going to talk about assessment later in this mm-hmm. conversation, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it's such an important point that sometimes we think that certain outcomes, we have to do it this way. And you're right. If it doesn't say write, if it doesn't say speak, if it doesn't say that, mm-hmm. then we have so much flexibility in how we gather evidence. So I'm thinking about the second part of this question was really about, um, UDL. Mm -hmm. My colleagues and I use a phrase in our most recent book, we used a phrase, a a section in each chapter. It was about student investment, self-assessment, all of that. Mm -hmm. We called it dangerous detours and seductive shortcuts, which, uh, you know, yeah. (laughs) So, so when it comes to UDL Mm -hmm. and you think about UDL, what are those dangerous detours and seductive shortcuts Mm -hmm. that people might say, Oh, I'm doing D I do UDL, but I'm not really, it's kind of UDL light. Like I'm not really doing it. So what are some of those dangerous detours and seductive shortcuts? And I think, and you know what, and I actually understand why people do it is um, the UDL strategies that people employ are the ones they understand, Mm -hmm. right? Which are, Mm -hmm. we give them multiple ways um, that give them choice in different ways. Like basically what I see, when I see UDL, I see choice in question, choice of example, choice of book to read, which is great. Um, But that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? When we actually get into the deeper parts of UDL, which harness student assessment and our student mm-hmm. self-assessment and, and um, formative feedback and helping kids to be in charge of their learning, um, that's where I think we we fall off. But if you look at UDL at the very, very top of the principles, those are the most accessible ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I see because they're the most accessible. But I also, I also if you look at the more complex princ- or like strategies, they're not clear. So I also I also understand why it, it, UDL isn't deeply practiced um, because I don't I don't think teachers understand what that means. Um, mm-hmm. I also I think another difficulty with UDL is a lot of people think it's a special education initiative that's right. just for special needs students instead mm-hmm. of understanding that this is for the garden. This is for everybody. You know, like right. like every strategy on UDL 
does not compromise evaluation. Like anyone can use these strategies. So we have to teach them, but they're not going to get to kids if teachers don't know what they are. Um, and so I think that it's, it's really demystifying and separating UDL from adaptations. Like it, those are, that's old language. That's really old language. We're not doing that anymore. This is about what are different pathways? What does this look like? How do we get kids to take ownership of their learning? But that's mm -hmm. also not how probably any of us grew up. Right. Right. And we hold on to what we know uh, and understanding, oh, the UDL bandwagon or, oh, this new UDL thing. I'm like, UDL is not new. It's just very misunderstood. It's not understood. And so when I think about those shortcuts, I think people are like, oh, yeah, I gave them choice of a question. I'm doing UDL. And I'm like, it, it's so much deeper than that. And I think like UDL is a language. It's a muscle that you constantly have to build and understand over time, which is why this takes like deep professional learning to really, truly understand the, the, the promise of it is incredible, but it's, it, it, there needs to be some serious demystification. Um, otherwise those detours and shortcuts are just going to be very, very shallow, shallow attempts um, and not actually impact the learners where they need. Yeah. It's so interesting when you talk about this idea that UDL is what we do in response. If you can't learn quote unquote, the normal way, exactly. I teach you the normal exactly. way, then I'll do UDL for you because you need something special. No. We really have to, uh, I love that mm -hmm. word demystify, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the notion of UDL and, and, uh, and mm -hmm. how we, it's a front end decision about how we create access and entry points for, for all learners. And yeah. I think that that mindset shift is, is good. So Shelly, I want to finish up by discussing assessment, of course, because my favorite, my favorite as well, of course, the listeners know that, um, a phrase that always rings in my ear and mm -hmm. it's, it's something I, you know, obviously I didn't invent this phrase, but, but this phrase of the soft bigotry of low expectations is one that really rings in my ear. So on the one hand, of course, we need to be attentive to the unique needs of our learners, especially those with identified special needs, et cetera. But on the other hand, we, we can't be too quick to adjust expectations as we, you know, do because we could end up impeding their success as opposed to supporting them. Mm -hmm. So, and the other, the other phrase I hear from people sometimes, not, this is not a lot, this is not even most, this is just, you know, enough to notice. Mm -hmm. um, oh, Tom, you don't understand. Our kids can't do that. Oh, I hear that or all those the time, Those kids Tom. can't do that. So here's my question. <laughs> yeah. Where's, where's the balance? Yeah. Because on the one hand, we want to create mm -hmm. this idea of being supportive to all learners and mm -hmm. be attentive to their needs. But at the same time, we really do, want to push forward with this idea that all learners can reach high levels of intellectual performance and, and can reach their full potential. So where's the balance for you, Shelley, in that whole well, assessment realm? I think that the key learning that I had around balance of assessment <laughs> was moving away from benchmarks, right? Because okay. if there's a benchmark where everyone should be, there's going to be kids who can't do it. Right. Just like there's kids who could go further and don't, right? And so when I think about the balance, I think the work around making, instead of like, benchmarks but looking at windows where okay. those where we're, we're planning for a range we're planning for variability instead of planning for average okay right. and um and so i'm really excited about a lot of the work around like learner progressions etc except mm -hmm. um accessibility is still not considered like even right. within the, the 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 continuums that are provided or that are being constructed they start at grade level and so basically that eliminates many, many kids, because if we start at where they should be, and that's not in the zone of proximal development, right? You know, kids, yeah. kids are going to fall off, right? And it's, it's so much easier to add on complexity than it is to take away. And right. so then this comes back to that adaptation and modification. Oh, they can't do it. So let's modify for them. Let's adapt for them. And it becomes this retrofit approach. And so where I see um, the possibility of progressions is actually not starting at grade level, having a really clear continuum of grade level, but also creating what I like to call an access point, which is not at grade level, but it is designed specifically for the kids who need it in the class as a stepping stone to get to grade level. So it provides a scaffold. And so some people have said, well, that's watering down curriculum. I'm like, no, not if, not if you go past it. Like if we taught this access point and stayed there, Absolutely. That's super problematic. But like, as we know, like kids will have a high, will have a, a, a higher chance of moving to more complex thinking if they start with success, right? If they start with success, right. if we chunk it, if we kind of create little stepping stones. And I think like, you know, like, like in BC, for example, we have the four point, four point scale 
Um, mm. And I just, I think it needs to be five because, you know, like having kids approaching and acknowledging, you're always going to have kids who are approaching grade level. So let's use that as a scaffold to say, this is where we're starting for everybody. Yeah. Right. Like what's yeah. the assumed knowledge that we think kids have or can do. And like, it meets the needs of kids with prior knowledge. It meets the needs of kids with intellectual disabilities because sometimes that becomes their IEP goal. It meets the needs of kids who can do grade level, but they need like support and success to get there. And a lot of kids are approaching, but we don't celebrate that. And so instead they drop off, they drop off. Right. Step is too high for them. And so right. it's not that they can't do it. They just need a stepping stool <laughs> and you know, throw the wrench of COVID in there. No one is where they should be. Yeah, exactly. so, like, I love the work of, of continuums, but, we're still we're still building continuums from average and beyond right instead of being like what are the range of the actual kids in front of you mm-hmm. we have to build our continuums to match the range of our kids and as yeah. long as everyone is taught everything everyone has the opportunity to go further and so part of part of the research that i did was i worked with in the professional development sequence helping teachers to create access points to their grade level instruction designed specifically for the student who was there and two of the kids passed the course like with credit because you know what they mean they they mean they they got to minimum but that is the difference between graduating and not like that can change trajectory of kids life and so i think like even the word like proficiency for one column is problematic because technically it's looking at how do we take grade level proficiency and make it into a scaffolded window of success because yeah. if kids are in the window that's successful for for a whole bunch of kids but so i think like how do we balance that we balance that by actually creating assessment models that match the actual range of kids who are in front of us not the kids who were there 10 years ago Right. Right. To right. be like, who is here? Being very clear about what grade level it is. Like, this isn't about abandoning curriculum, but making no. it accessible and challenging at the same time, designing for the kids on the edges, teaching it to everybody. But then this yeah. is the part that I think is really critical for UDL is helping kids to make that decision about the level of complexity they're showing evidence of, right? And having right. kids right. be a part of that assessment conversation because that's where that motivation piece comes from. Absolutely. It's, that's my soapbox of assessment, Tom. <laughs> bringing, kids, bringing kids inside. I mean, that's the topic of our, our latest book and, well, and bringing that's kids it. inside the assessment process. It's so critical because mm. – you know, I learned from Rick Stiggins 20 years ago mm-hmm. that the person who does the assessing does the learning. And, exactly. Uh, bring, yeah. And wow. we've got to bring them inside that process. And so when I work with schools and, yeah. and teachers, it's you're developing your expertise so you can teach the students how to do this for themselves. It's mm-hmm. not your your expertise is not the end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Some people might look at it, a watering down the curriculum and, uh, and it's, maybe it is if that's yeah, where you stop. That's right. But maybe. Oh. Yeah. To use your analogy. Mm-hmm. Maybe the garden needs water. Maybe the garden needs water. Everyone That's needs right. water, not just one. Everyone needs and water. The I, garden. Yeah, absolutely. Like, having an accessible starting point hurts nobody. No, it hurts nobody. And I think that we just get into this rut of, of thinking. And uh, yeah, so it's a. Shelly, I. I, I I could talk about this with you all, all day. day sure. Tom. Fantastic. I love it. Um, but as we finish up here, I've got two questions left yeah. as, as uh, we finish up. And, and I, these are questions I ask everyone mm-hmm. uh, who come on the podcast. The first one, a little heavier. Um, yeah. and, and you can take this in any direction you want mm-hmm. to. But the, the first question I want to finish with is, uh, educationally speaking, yeah. what, keep, what keeps you up at night? Oh, Tom, this is so hard because everything does. But I'll pick one. <laughs> pick one. If I were or to two. pick one. What keeps me up at night, and we've talked about this, is the view that disability is a deficit. Yeah. Like, we got to change that. And we know mm-hmm. we know that that's not appropriate for every other identity. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, like as a queer person, I always kind of bring this back to my experience. And, like, sure, if someone said, like, when I came out, everyone told my mom, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, like it's it's devastating. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I never felt more free and happy and positive as when I started to own that identity. And I think that for my kids, like, I want my kids that I work with to come up and be like, I have autism. Isn't that amazing? And I'm like, yes! But, like, they're never going to say that unless we surround them with the with the narrative and the perspectives that autism is a part of this world and Down syndrome is a part of this world and disability is a part of this world that makes this world brighter, yeah. not heavier. And that's probably what keeps me awake because you can't force people to see that. No, no, yeah. that's a, that's, mm-hmm. that's a big one. And, yeah. and certainly, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, 
a, a different perspective for many and certainly uh, trying to see it as as part of the identity and part of what the, what is the fabric of our society as opposed to looking yeah. at it as a deficit or that you are less than. Um, I hear you on that for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, so finally, we're going to end on a lighter note. Um, yeah. I love food and you live on Bowen Island and I can't remember the last time I was on Bowen Island. Have you been? Uh, I, 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 look, it's gotta be 30 plus years since I've been on Bowen, but I don't even know the lot. I couldn't name the year when I was on Bowen Island, so I haven't been, but I, I like to ask people where the best place to eat is, and it doesn't have to be high end, low end, doesn't matter, hole in the wall, Uh food truck. I don't care. Where's the best place to eat on Bowen Island? Here's the thing about Bowen. We have four restaurants. Okay. So I'm going to tell you the best place on Bowen to eat is my house. Because my wife is a baker and she is a chef. And if you come to Bowen, you're going to call me up and I'm going to invite you over for dinner. All right. So I'm going to no. knock on your door and, uh, and show you I'm here. You told me I could come over for, for, Jeez, I hope the, the baking best. is done. I don't know how I lucked out with this life, but Love it. I am not a cook, but she is. And whoo. I All right, am. let's go with let's go to Vancouver. So we know Bowen okay, Island okay, is okay. the best place to eat. So let's go to the Metro Vancouver area. Okay, okay, okay. When you're when you're in the Vancouver area, yeah, yeah. favorite place to eat? Oh, this is hard one. Just just one. Doesn't have to be number one. Okay, just the you first know what? Our, for our family, our kind of go to fave is burgoo. Yeah. Oh, so we okay. love burgoo. Those little gooey cheese sandwiches. Delicious. All right, delicious. Mm-hmm. It's burgoo. our comfort food. We go in the winter. Yeah, you got to love that comfort food for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, fantastic. Um, so if I'm on Bowen Island, you hear the uh, the doorbell house. ring, you'll mm-hmm. know it's me. And I expect the baking to be finished oh, and ready so to smell. <laughs> I have expectations, Shelly. Fresh out of the oven. I'll give you a one-day warning for sure. And uh, and Virgo when we're, when we're in the Vancouver area for sure. Uh, listeners, you can and you absolutely should follow uh, Shelly. Uh, she is everywhere. Uh, Twitter. The handle is at tweet some more uh, and uh, M O O R E. You, uh, you, you just use, you use, use your name. So I love my in name. such a it's clever way. Helps yeah, me, uh, helps me remember. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Instagram it's at five more minutes. Uh, and again, more being with two O's uh, five more minutes on Facebook. You of course have the podcast and the YouTube channel, which is fabulous. Five more minutes uh, and the website, www dot. Yes, you guessed it. Five, five more, more minutes. minutes. Dot. <laughs> Um, Shelly, this was a fantastic conversation. Time just flies. I really appreciate your insight. Um, it was a, it was, it was a great, great conversation. I've learned a lot from you already and, uh, really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. No, anytime. And keep doing the good work. Hey, this podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network, better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbettercom slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk a little bit about portfolios because I do think portfolios can be a really great collection tool, but we have to be focused on what the purpose of the portfolio is, and I think that's where some schools and or teachers kind of miss the mark. Susan Belgrad did a nice job of summarizing some of the most important aspects of the research around portfolios, and she did this in the Sage Handbook of Research on Classroom Assessment that was published back in 2013. Now, she wrote in that summary that portfolios can be an important component of a comprehensive evaluation system. Comprehensive systems of evaluation that include portfolios of student performance have been proposed for years, she says, and they have been proposed for a number of different reasons. The first she submits is that traditional assessments assume that knowledge has universal meanings, whereas knowledge is actually complex and can have multiple meanings and perspectives, and that's where a portfolio can come in. The second assertion she makes is that standardized assessments treat learning as a passive process, whereas portfolios treat learning as an active process in which students are engaged in the search for meaning. And the third suggestion is that testing, she says, emphasizes the mastery of discrete and isolated bits of information or knowledge, but advocates of student-centered learning believe the emphasis of assessment should be placed on both the process as well as the products of learning. And finally, more overarching, she suggests that the most central point or view of portfolios is that portfolios focus on how the ongoing processes of student inquiry capture the cognitive abilities that successful achievement and engage students themselves as participants in the instructional design and authentic assessment of key learning events in different subject areas. So portfolios, you know, have been around uh, since I started teaching and the idea has always been there. 
She goes on to add that portfolios can serve a variety of purposes and take on a variety of forms. And, and this is what I want to focus on here. I would say often, but not always, portfolios are implemented for the right reasons, but unfortunately the purpose of the portfolio is not thought through. I think this is one of the most important parts that's missing often. It's an important first step in the successful implementation of any portfolio system, uh, system especially long-term. If we're going to utilize portfolios, then let's make sure we're clear on what purpose we want the portfolio to serve. And then let's go about the business of fulfilling that purpose. And I want to be clear, there's no purpose that's superior to another. That's not the issue. The issue is that, you know, I don't take any issue with any of the purposes. My point is to say that let's not say we're doing one thing, but then end up doing another. Right. So the purposes, she says, are the learning portfolio, the developmental portfolio, assessment portfolio, and a showcase portfolio. So let's not pretend we're doing a learning portfolio when, in fact, in execution and implementation, what we're doing is a showcase portfolio. Right. If you want the portfolio to be uh, substantive, then we can't turn it into show and tell. So let me go through each of these four types that she outlined and give you a little bit of perspective on them. Right. The first one is the learning portfolio. This is a portfolio that captures evidence of knowledge and skills to provide a holistic picture of learning and achievement over time. So for me, the word that comes to mind is overall or holistic, right? A learning portfolio, it's kind of the view from 30,000 feet. Like this is what the learner has learned. Here's all the knowledge and skills, and it provides a holistic picture for the learner. Now, if you want a developmental portfolio, that's different. That's a developmental portfolio focuses on growth. This is where you demonstrate continued growth and development as a reader, a writer, a critical thinker, whatever it might be. So showing growth has a different purpose than showing overall achievement. And so that's the difference between a learning portfolio and developmental portfolio. So again, you can see that if we say, well, we want a portfolio that shows growth, but in execution, it looks more like a learning portfolio, then we're not fulfilling the purpose of the promise that we were looking for. Then she says a third type of portfolio is the assessment portfolio. And this is where we capture evidence of achievement of benchmarks or standards, how criteria are met. Um, and we start talking about plans for improvement, which is a little bit of growth. But the thing that I think of when it comes to an assessment portfolio is details. I think of specificity. I think of specific criteria. I think the idea is drilling down a little bit, right? So the learning portfolio is about a holistic view of the learner. The developmental portfolio is about growth. And the assessment portfolio is more about the details and getting sort of drilling down. And she finally uh, talks about the showcase portfolio, which is basically just inviting students to focus on and communicate and celebrate their individual achievements, their talents. This is kind of the show and tell portfolio. And this, to me, the word that comes to mind is expansive. It's like we can include anything in this portfolio because really it's kind of a superficial view. Now, I don't, I don't mean superficial view in the sense that it doesn't matter because I'm celebrating my talents or showcasing things like that, but we're not drilling down necessarily to criteria. We're just saying, here's what I'm good at or here's what I've accomplished. So don't think of surface level or superficial as something um, dismissive. It is what it is. If you want the portfolio to be show and tell and you want parents and families to just see what students are, what their children are doing, no problem with that. So if you're not currently implementing any kind of portfolio system, but you want to, then I would really encourage you to think through the purpose of that portfolio system before you do any implementation. What purpose do we want the portfolio to serve? Now, if you have implemented a portfolio system, Maybe now's a good time to audit your purpose and determine whether or not you thought through with some level of clarity and some level of specificity what purpose you wanted the portfolio to serve. And if you haven't, then maybe we need to reinvigorate, maybe we need to reset, maybe we need to do something that will help us kind of get focused and make sure the portfolio fulfills the promise that we were hoping it would. And again, this would go for either a tangible portfolio or an online portfolio. And I would even also say this of programs like Seesaw and others where we implement these systems of communication, but maybe we haven't thought through the purpose and therefore aren't really fulfilling any kind of purpose to its nth degree. That to me is a really important aspect. Now, the other aspect I would add is consumability. Because conceptually, 
I think it's hard to argue with the idea of a portfolio. But then when you start to think about how long it can take to examine a portfolio, we might think twice about it. This idea has been around for the entirety of my career. And, and yet, with rare exceptions, it's often implemented in an unsustainable way. And I think one of the reasons is, and it's certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons is, is that teachers and administrators haven't thought through the purpose of the portfolio, aren't fulfilling its intended use with enough detail so that long-term sustainability is possible. If you were to, for example, use the portfolio as a kind of self-assessment or uh, uh, peer assessment uh, exercise, then you could distribute the workload and students could be in a position where they're making some assessment decisions about what's next or what was achieved and so on, right? So, so that workload aspect, again, what purpose does the portfolio serve? For me, like most things, the success of a portfolio doesn't hinge on the idea itself. It hinges on the implementation strategy that schools employ. Administrators and teachers need to think through what purpose does the portfolio serve. There is this cliche, of course, that says, slow down to speed up. And I think there's no place where that cliche is more applicable than when it comes to the implementation of a portfolio system. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got assessment corner questions or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links for all the upcoming professional learning events coming up this spring. Next time, episode 99, my guest will be Jessica Vance. Jessica is an advocate for inquiry-based learning. She's also the author of Leading with a Lens of Inquiry, Cultivating Conditions for Curiosity and Empowering Agency. And that's what we're going to focus on for our conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.